Uh, Let's continue in a posture of prayer as we uh, prepare to enter back into the Sermon on the Mount. Lord God, your word is like a hammer. It is like fire. Uh, It is like a surgeon's scalpel that divides bone and marrow, uh, pierces to the very deep places of our souls. And Lord, right now, in this hour, we come under your word and we say to you that you are Lord of your word. You are Lord of our lives. And may this time that we spend in your word uh, be a furtherance in our submission to your lordship. We pray your help. We pray your blessing. Uh, Come and speak to us now through this portion of Matthew, we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, today's message is the very last message in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. According to my records, uh, we've been parked in the Sermon on the Mount for almost 10 months now, if you can feature it. Um, I trust that through all these many Sundays that we have spent in Matthew 5 through 7, that the Lord has been speaking to us and dealing with us uh, through this very magnificent portion of his word. Now, the last time that we were in the Sermon on the Mount was three weeks ago, so just to refresh us a little bit on the territory that we have covered in recent weeks, I want to remind you that the final verse of ethical instruction that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount is back at chapter 7, verse 12. And of course, 7.12 is the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That is the final ethical instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. And then what has followed from 7.13 right up to the end of the sermon is a series of three challenges three challenges that effectively say the same thing, which is that you and I will either choose to follow Jesus and his teaching by doing his teaching, or we will not. And there are very real consequences. One consequence of a blessed nature And on the other hand, another consequence that is cursed, depending on which of the two choices that you make, to follow and do the words of Jesus or not. Well, in the past two sermons, we tackled the first two of these three challenges that Jesus issues us at the end of his sermon. Today, in our final sermon in this series, we will concentrate on the third challenge. And so I hope you have a Bible open before you, either uh, a paper Bible or on your phone. We pick it up today at Matthew 7, verse 24. And what we want to do here is to read through uh, the first four verses of this passage because these four verses make up what I would call an organized unit, a unit that coheres together. So beginning at verse 24, Jesus says to us, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came 
and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And whoever hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now the first thing to notice here is what Jesus says at the very start of verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. What are these words? What is Jesus referring to when he uses that phrase, these words? Well, he's referring to everything he's just preached in the Sermon on the Mount. And you and I, having listened to Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount over the past ten months, we fit into the category of everyone. That Jesus uses here. We are the everyone who have heard these words of Jesus Christ. And having heard him, having heard his teaching, we are now called upon, friends, we need to see this, we are called upon in what follows to make a choice. A choice between doing the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount or not doing them. And the consequences that will follow our choice could not be more sobering and more serious. I need you to watch this with me. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Notice that very carefully. And does them. Jesus is after the person who actually activates himself or herself to obey what Jesus has preached since the beginning of chapter 5. Everyone, who, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a phronimos man in Greek, a wise man. Now, a phronimos man, a wise man is a person who is sensible. This is a person who is prudent and who is judicious. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and does them will be like a wise man who did what? Who built his house on the what? On the rock. Now, in Scripture, the word rock so often symbolizes a place of security, a place of safety. And do notice, friends, I want you to notice this, the close connection in this passage as we read it carefully, the close connection here between this word rock and the phrase, these words of mine. There is a close connection here, a close link between the word rock 
and the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, in the Sermon on the Mount. One way we could put it is that the rock that Jesus speaks about here is a symbol for these words of his. And to do the words of Jesus on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount is to build one's house, to build one's life on solid, secure rock. And to do this is phronimos, says Jesus. This is wisdom. We need wisdom in our lives, do we not? This is the way to wisdom. Now again, we need to stress, because it is so vitally important, that Jesus here is after doers of the Sermon on the Mount. I was very glad to see in the mission statement of Oasis a focus on being doers of the word. Jesus is after doers of the Sermon on the Mount. Focus your eyes again on that phrase in verse 24, and does them. Now listen, it is so easy for you and I to hear the words of Jesus, maybe be struck by the profundity of the words of Jesus, maybe respect what Jesus has to say, but then walk away doing nothing with those words, doing nothing about those words in the inner workings of our lives. Likewise, it is so easy for us to hear the words of Jesus and then maybe say stuff about those words. Be verbally enthusiastic concerning his words, but in the end, we do nothing concerning his words in terms of how we carry out our lives. We fail to act in obedience to the teaching of Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to listen to 1 John 2, verses 4 through 6, just for a moment. And I want you to listen especially to how the Apostle John here focuses on doing the word of Jesus. John writes, Whoever says, I know him, and does not, what? Keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever, what? Keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in, what, in which he walked. Now notice, won't you, the New Testament's insistence on keeping the word of God and walking in imitation of him, doing the word. The true and genuine disciple. The phronimos person, the wise person in this world, is the person who doesn't stop at hearing the word and or saying stuff about the word. The true disciple is going to be a doer of the word, obedient to the word, a person who desires and who strives to keep the Sermon on the Mount. He or she 
will desire and strive to walk in accordance with the commands of Jesus Christ in both private life and in public life. Jesus is calling you and I to test ourselves right now. Are we hearers only? Hearers only concerning the Sermon on the Mount, or are we actually seeking to organize our entire life around its teaching and doing that in a proactive and in a specific way? Well, as we move to verse 25, I want you to notice now the blessed consequences of doing the Sermon on the Mount, of seeking to obey what Jesus demands of us, and it is demanding in his sermon. The person, the person who has built his or her life on the rock, on the sure foundation of the words of Jesus, is going to be safe. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now notice, won't you, the triple threat that is assaulting the house that is built on the rock. The triple threat is rain, floods, and heavy winds. The rain pours and pelts down on the house. The floodwaters rise around the house. The wind hammers on, beats on the house. And the house, built on the rock, stands. It does not fall because, after all, it has been built on solid, secure ground. Now, with this imagery of the storm on the house... What is Jesus getting at, actually? What is the meaning of this imagery? Is Jesus talking here about the storms of life? Things like serious illness or the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one. And that the person whose life is characterized by doing the word of Jesus will stand through all those trials of life. Is that what Jesus is getting at? Well, although there is certainly nothing wrong with such an idea, on a theological level, I don't think that that's what Jesus is talking about here especially with the wider witness of Scripture in view. I'm convinced that the crisis that Jesus describes here, rain, floods, great wind, this storm that comes and beats on the house, is not a picture of the storms of life. But rather, this is a picture, in fact, of the final judgment that is yet to come. And a great many biblical commentators have gone in this direction. Why? Well, because there are so many passages sprinkled throughout the Bible that describe God's judgment in terms of a storm. So many, in fact, that it seems pretty clear 
that that is what Jesus is picturing here in Matthew chapter 7. Listen. How did God's judgment come at the time of Noah? It came in terms of a storm. Rain, floodwaters, and wind. Yes? God's judgment. And Isaiah 28 verse 2 describes the judging Lord in terms of a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of, of mighty overflowing waters. And Ezekiel 13 verse 11 describes God coming to judge with the terminology of a deluge of rain, great hailstones, and stormy wind. We also have Nahum chapter 1 verse 8 where the promise is that with an overflowing flood, God will make a complete end of his adversaries. Or Jeremiah 23:19, Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. Well, with all of those passages in mind, and many more that we didn't mention, Working in the background here, and these are all passages that Jesus knew well from his Hebrew Bible. So with all those working in the background, and also with the entire context of Matthew 7.13 onward, where Jesus has talked repeatedly, hasn't he, about judgment day, about the final destinations of people, I am convinced that the rain, floods, and winds in verses 25 and again in verse 27 are referring to the final judgment that is still to come. And so the import or the meaning of what Jesus says here in verses 24 and 25 is crystal clear. And I want you to listen because this has to do with each and every one of us. The teaching is that the person who is a doer of the word of Jesus Christ is the wise person who is building his or her life on the rock by doing Jesus' commands. And at the final judgment, when the rains, floods, and wind of God arrive, that wise person will withstand the storm. Listen well to the word of Jesus Christ. Be prepared for that great day because it is surely coming. Amen? Now, at this point, it could be that for some of us, a question has arisen in our minds. The question is, Is it then my doing, my obedience to the commands of Jesus that is the thing that saves me ultimately from the judgment of God? I mean, if we read verses 24 and 25 by themselves, it sure seems that Jesus is teaching that it's totally up to us to determine whether we stand or fall 
on Judgment Day. Either we will do what Jesus commands and hence stand on that day, or we will not, and hence we will fall. Well, friends, I want to stress that our doing, our living in obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ, though it is crucially, indispensably important, is not how we are forgiven by God. Doing works of righteousness is not how we gain a right right relationship with him. Our holy actions are not the basis of our right standing with God. Our doing is also not the ultimate factor in our escape from the fires of his judgment. We need to make sure that that is very, very clear. Jesus is not suggesting in our passage this morning or in any other passage that we earn salvation by the good works that we do. Listen, salvation and the forgiveness of sin is all of God. Amen? It comes by His grace to us in His crucified Son. We are forgiven by God and put into a right relationship with Him only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that God has provided. You need to understand that God's love for you, listen friend, God's love for you will never, ever be purchased by you. His love and forgiveness come to you solely by His grace. But... As Brian Chappelle has put it so well, and I want you to listen closely because this is a great sentence. He says, grace does not preclude holiness, but makes it possible. I want to read that again. Grace does not preclude holiness, but makes it possible. The person who is saved by the amazing grace of God, the person who is living in union with Jesus as Savior because of the work of Jesus, will desire to walk in his way. Will want to do what Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount and will be enabled to do so by the Holy Spirit of God. He or she will desire to walk in this way because he or she knows the lights have gone on and he or she knows that this is the way to flourish as a human being. Are you looking for the way to flourish in your life as a human being? It's in the Sermon on the Mount. The person who is saved by grace wants to do this because this is the way to flourishing. This is the way to love God and to love neighbor. This is the way to bring glory to the one who has saved us. The doing of Jesus' word comes as a result of right relationship with God, a relationship that God has caused in the redeemed, born-again person. The doing of the words of Jesus must be there. It is evidence of a person's salvation. Amen? 
The Bible teaches that when we are saved, we are created in Christ Jesus to be his disciples by his grace and that our doing, the doing that will bring glory to him is the necessary result of our being created in him. Ephesians 2 verse 10. But again, our doing does not save us. Our doing does not create the right relationship with him. But the person who is saved by grace will be a doer of what Jesus commands, even though that doing will never be perfect. And thus that person will withstand the storm of the final judgment. Let's go forward now to verses 26 and 27. Now, in these verses, we have the description of the second kind of human being who does not do the words of Jesus. And we have a description of the terrifying consequences for that person. Listen to the word of Jesus. He says in verse 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a Moros, in Greek, from which we get moron. A moros man, a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Now notice again that Jesus, doesn't he, he presents things here in a very stark fashion. In the economy of Jesus, there are only two kinds of people in this whole world those who hear and do his words, and those who hear but do not do his words. There is no third category. Again, the first category, verses 24 and 25, are those who hear the words of Jesus and do those words and are thus secure on the rock to withstand judgment. But now the second category here in verses 26 and 27 are those who hear and do not do his words and are thus on insecure footing. They are on sand and they will not withstand judgment. And what does sand symbolize here? Well, I think it symbolizes anything other than the words of God in the Sermon on the Mount, in the context. These people's life is built on something other than the Sermon on the Mount, and it is sinking, sifting sand. Just by virtue of the fact that it's not Jesus and his word. Verse 27, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell... And great was the fall of it. Now, friends, what I want us to pay attention to here, we've now traveled through this unit, verses 24 through 27. I want us to notice a couple of things. First, have you noticed how similar is the description of the two kinds of people that Jesus has presented us with here? Look at your Bible. Notice in verse 24, Jesus presents us with the first person who hears his words. And again in verse 26, the second person he presents us with also hears his words. 
So there's no difference between the two people in this respect. They both hear his words. Further, in verse 24 and also in verse 26, both of these people build a house. There is absolutely no difference that Jesus gives between the two houses proper that the two people build. We can assume that the two houses were identical, although their foundations are very different. But the houses themselves, for all intents and purposes, were identical. And third, notice in verse 25 and again in verse 27, that the storm that both people face in their identical houses is the same. In both cases, we have falling rain, flooding water, and blowing winds. So the point is this. Jesus seems careful here, does he not, to present these two people, these two kinds of people, in largely the same way, to show us how similar both people appear. Why? I want you to listen. I think John Stott is bang on here when he says that Jesus is trying to show us that genuine Christians and bogus Christians often live side by side. And they look a lot alike on the outside. It's hard to tell the difference oftentimes. But the foundation, the foundation, the unseen foundation underneath is either going to be rock or it's going to be sand. A person is either a doer A doer, a doer of the word of Jesus Christ. A person is either submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ in private and public, and thus that person lives on a foundation of rock, or though there might be a great show of talk, and as a preacher I have to be really careful here, Though there might be a great show of talk, the other person is living on sand. It's not a doer of the word and is thus unprepared for the final judgment. Friends, to hear the teaching of Jesus only and not to heed it in one's life leaves one unprepared for final judgment. You will not stand if you are a hearer only. You are right now on sand. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed 
in his doing. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. Well, the second thing I want us to notice about verses 24 to 27 before we go on to the concluding verses today is that verse 27, notice this, look in your Bible. Verse 27 is the official end of the Sermon on the Mount. We need to see this. Verse 27 is the last thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So that, notice this, the last words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are about what? They are about a house falling in a great crash. A life falling at the final judgment. The end. Now, Jesus, this is no way to end a sermon. Right? I mean, we like a nice Hollywood ending where all the loose ends are wrapped up in a nice bow. We're left with a cuddly metaphor or a cozy anecdote to go and ponder over lunch. Jesus ends his sermon in a less than upbeat way, right? With a picture of terrifying judgment. Why? Because I think Jesus seeks to hammer home to us what he's been trying to hammer home to us since verse 13. In the excellent words of Dan Doriani, he says, With this shocking way that Jesus ends his sermon, he is making a point. And the point is, it is not enough to study or applaud the words of Jesus. We must do what he says. Otherwise, we are in danger of hypocrisy, in danger of facing a great crash. Yes, friends, that is the salient point that Jesus wants to leave us with as he wraps up his sermon. Be doers of what he, as God's Son, has demanded and commanded. This is the focus at the end of the sermon. Let's go to verse 28. Watch this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were what? They were astonished. Or as John Stott has it, they were dumbfounded at his teaching. And friends, I don't think that much has changed over 2,000 years. If you can read what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you can listen to his sermon and not feel a sense of astonishment, then we need to talk. You need to make an appointment with me, and we're going to talk about what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and how it relates directly to your life and to mine. They were astonished. They had this sense of astonishment. His teaching here is astounding. It shocks us. It unsettles us. It amazes us. It's like sandpaper sometimes to our souls. Other times it's like flannel sheets, but sometimes it's like sandpaper, and we need that. For, as verse 29 says, 
He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, the scribes in Jesus' day were the highest of the high in terms of religious authorities walking around in Israel. The scribes in Jesus' day quoted authority after authority after rabbi after rabbi after rabbi. They taught by the authority of others like Moses, but Jesus taught as one who had personal authority in and of himself. As John Piper has it, Jesus' words have authority because when he speaks, God speaks. Jesus speaks from God the Father as God the Son. You know, the crowds must have been so shocked, I think, when Jesus said repeatedly in this sermon, I say to you. Right? See, the scribes would say, Rabbi so-and-so said, and then they would quote the rabbi, but Jesus says, I say to you. Jesus came with his own authoritative interpretation of the law of God, and repeatedly in his sermon, as we've noticed, Jesus claimed, listen to this, that the very destiny of human beings depended on how they responded to what he said. He taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And the astonishment at Jesus and his teaching carries over into chapter 8, verse 1, where Jesus, having gone up the mountain, way back at chapter 5, verse 1, as the new Moses to deliver the law of God on the mountain, now he comes down the mountain and great crowds Follow him. I think I would have followed him in those crowds too. The crowds want to be with him. There was something about him. There was a mysterious authority about him, a weighty atmosphere. My friend, what will you do? And I don't want you to think about anybody else or look around the sanctuary. What will you do? with Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount? Will you be a hearer only and walk away? One whose intellect is maybe tickled by the teaching. One who maybe applauds what Jesus says. But you have no intention of doing what Jesus teaches. Or... Will you be a phronomos person, a wise person? Will you seek, as if your life depended on it, and it does depend on it, will you seek to do the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? That's the question. I want to leave you this morning with the words of Charles Quarles, who says this, The study of the Sermon on the Mount is not a mere academic exercise that satisfies a person's curiosity about a great teacher or stirs interest in the ethical instruction of an ancient Jewish philosopher. 
The Sermon on the Mount demands, not too strong a word, demands that hearers and readers obey its commands. The Sermon on the Mount calls every reader to begin a long and difficult journey on a narrow path, a path marked by pain and persecution, but also a path that leads to a narrow gate beyond which the weary traveler will enjoy wonders too great to describe. My friend, will you follow the crowd or will you follow Jesus? That's the question that rings out to each of us as Jesus' sermon ends. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the authority that you have given your son. We thank you for this word of the Sermon on the Mount that we have traveled through for all these many months that still arrests our minds and hearts and gives us pause and challenges us, encourages us in other ways. We thank you for all that you have taught us and are teaching us through this portion of your word. And I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would draw intimately close in this upcoming week Remind each of us of maybe a word or a verse or a passage from the sermon that you want us to apply more fully in our lives. And we thank you for the power you have given us as believers by the Holy Spirit to carry out your word. Lord, you don't command and then leave us alone, but you give us the power to accomplish what you have commanded. And so we praise and thank you for that. And we thank you for this great portion of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord, who has never failed in any of his promises, who does not leave or forsake his own, may he turn your heart to him to walk in his ways and to keep his commands that he gave to our fathers in the faith. Amen.